everybody. So, you know, preaching really isn't a competition. Probably wondering where I'm going with that. But if we are keeping score, last week, Alex, uh, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, you know, and Alex preached on just one section of the Sermon on the Mount. And um, this morning I'm covering four. And I think there's, I think there's a couple reasons for that. Um, one, we want to actually finish Matthew. <laughs> Alex knows what I'm talking about. If you're a visitor, you, you'll get it if you come to another Sunday. <laughs> but, yeah, come next week, right? Um, but, um, also, I was like, oh, man, this starts with divorce, and that's not fun for anybody to talk about. But then I thought, well, also, Alex covered the last uh, sermon last week, so thanks for doing that one for me. <laughs> uh, but I'm very excited to continue to open God's Word and to continue through this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to give us a quick reminder of the point that Jesus is making in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Because all of these are very applicable life points that all of us should be mirroring as Christians for one purpose. God or Jesus is telling the people that if we are going to actually be proper followers of him, proper children of God, and he's talking here especially with the the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time around them, He said, if you want to find that kind of righteousness, you need to be more righteous than the Pharisees, right? Which probably didn't make the Pharisees happy to hear. But, so now he's laying out these things saying, hey, if you do this, live life this way. Because the Pharisees have been teaching you for a long time now their way. Where they had taken and looked at God's laws, and they had come up with what they thought was the best way to follow them. And, spoiler alert, it was really wrong. And so Jesus says, we're going to do it the right way. And so that's what this is about. And so we start today's with another tough topic, the topic of divorce. And this is a tough topic because divorce has affected so many lives, even in this room, right? Especially in America, what's, y'all know probably the statistic. Now, this was the statistic when I was a high schooler. It may have even grown by now. But even back then, it was that 50% of divorces or marriages end up in divorce. That is a, a terrifying statistic, is it not? But what made it even worse for me growing up as a Christian teenager was when I heard the other side of the statistic, that the percentage of Christian marriages that ends in divorce, at least back then, was 40%. What? What? And so divorce is a topic that affects all of us. And people seem, sadly, to constantly argue about divorce, especially in the church, right? Whether it's okay or not for this or that reason. And in fact, all of the different topics that we're going to discuss today are issues that people and Christians struggle with. And they're things that we argue over the little details of because we have it in our minds that if we just focus on the little details and get all the little, you know, cross our T's and dot our I's. I always flip that wrong way, but I got it right this time. If we all make sure we do those little things and we do it exactly right, then we're definitely going to be righteous. But even before we start on the divorce part, I want us to focus here that that is not even what Jesus's point is. Because if that's our only concern, then we have our priorities wrong. See, Jesus is concerned about our hearts. See, the people that thought they were building God's kingdom, these Pharisees especially, all they were concerned about was their outward appearance. All they were concerned about was, hey, I've memorized the law of God. In fact, I made new ones. And then I memorized those because that's what the Pharisees did. 
whenever people got too good at following the laws they came up with, they made new laws, <laughs> and they would require the people to follow those. But if that's all we're focused on, we're missing it, because the Pharisees' hearts weren't right. Later, Jesus would look at the Pharisees and say that their hearts were like whitewashed tombs. <laughs> they look good on the outside, but the inside is full of death and decay. But church, if we're going to be building the kingdom of God, if we're going to be members in the kingdom of God, we have to have kingdom-minded hearts. Amen? And so let's look at that, starting with the section on divorce. Let's read that again together. Thank you, Alex, for reading that passage for me. Um, Let's read these verses about divorce one more time. Jesus says to them, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What they were talking about here is the marriage certificate that was instituted by Moses in the Old Testament. Where this is where God looked at the people, and the people back then, they weren't holding marriage seriously. So if we just got married, and then I just wasn't feeling it one day, all of a sudden, all right, all right, I'm not married to you anymore. Let's just do our own thing, okay? But divorce was very serious in those times because the people were supposed to treat marriage as a lifelong covenant. And especially for the woman, divorce was extremely dangerous. See, this was in no ways fair. This was not a good thing. But in their culture, if the man divorced the woman, the man was pretty much fine. Some people might see it that he had sinned, sure, but that woman was then treated horribly. That woman could not get remarried. That woman was seen as an adulteress if she even tried to you know, start being with another man. And then she would sometimes be even ostracized from her whole community. And so these things were happening. So Moses, because of the sinful state of humanity, God said to Moses, hey, we're going to help regulate this. And we're going to give a certificate of divorce. But see, I want to make sure we understand that. When divorce, the uh, divorce certificate was created by God through Moses, It was meant to regulate divorce, not encourage it. It was to ensure that the woman was protected and allowed to live a normal life afterwards. It was regulated as a concession to our sinful hearts. If it wasn't for our sinful hearts in the first place, divorce wouldn't need to be regulated. But God, in his loving grace, (laughs) looked at us and said, Hey, I know that you're not perfect. You're sinful. And this is part, we're going to come back to this. This is uh, a part of what we call God's common grace. God's common grace. See, special grace is what we receive as Christians. It's that grace that God gives to us that saves us from our sins, and it's reserved for those called by his name. But his common grace is given to everybody. And it does two things. It it allows us to experience goodness. Even the sinners, we're going to see at the end of the sermon, right? Even the lost experience God's goodness. But it also keeps us from being as sinful as we could be. And that's what this is. God looked at us in our sin and said, I'm not going to allow them to simply just keep getting more and more wicked. So we're going to regulate it. And we see exactly what this looked like in um, the Bible. And uh, actually later on in this book, where Matthew's going to talk about it, in Matthew chapter 19. You can follow along on the screens. When the Pharisees, once again later, are going to come and try to trip Jesus up on this exact same topic. So he dives in a little more detail. It starts, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Like, man, do you see already, like, where they're leading off? Like, what divorce had become? Like, for any reason, Jesus, right? Can I just divorce them? Isn't it lawful? Isn't that what the Bible says? I love what Jesus does here. Because, have you ever noticed, what does Jesus almost always answer someone's question with? 
A question. I love it, right? Raise your hand if you're a teacher in here. It's so fun to annoy your, t- your students doing that, isn't it? It's so good because you know the answer. You just want them to come up with the answer themselves. They hate it. We love it. And it's a fun cycle. But anyway, it's just fun. Um, verse 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That should have been the end. <laughs> the Pharisees should have heard, should have heard that men like, man, we've got divorce all wrong. Jesus is right, but they don't. Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? <laughs> you see how they missed it? They're going, but Moses said, hey, if your wife, if your wife messed up, divorce her. No, that's not at all what Moses was saying. Jesus said this in verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed, notice that word, allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. See, people were abusing the marriage certificate law by basically using any excuse to divorce their wives. Her cooking's terrible. Divorce her. Okay? Jessica, thank you for being such a good cook. That will never be a... All right, but she argues a lot. Poof, divorce, gone. <laughs> and look, people still sadly do this today. Marriage is not seen as a holy institution by many people, so they have no problem with divorce. Man, I'm just not feeling... Alex, you mentioned this last Sunday with the, the lust thing, if I remember right, where it's like, man, I just, I just, I'm not feeling it anymore. I don't feel like I love her anymore. I'm just, I'm, things have changed, Right? Praise God, God didn't divorce his relationship with us because we changed. Amen? (laughs) See, when we do that, ultimately we're being selfish, aren't we? And since our sinful selves were just going to partake in divorce anyway, God gave us this law because God saw the root problem. It is our hearts. You know, when God created marriage, this this is fun. I actually never thought of this until I was doing this studying for this. uh, Jesus mentioned this with the Pharisees there. When God created marriage, divorce was impossible. When did God create marriage? Who was the first married couple? Adam and Eve. Was there an option? (laughs) They get in an argument one day, (laughs) right? Like, oh man, Eve, that leaf salad you've made me every day, (laughs) right? This is really bad today. I don't want to be married to you anymore. I'm going to Go to a different cave. <laughs> I'm gonna go to a different hut. I'm gonna do something else. No, it wasn't an option. You know who Adam had? Eve. And it was good. Because that's how God created it. He tells them, look, you're missing the point. If you are actually just trying to find any legal reason to say divorce is okay, your heart is completely wrong. Because our heart needs to understand the beauty of marriage first. To understand that marriage is that beautiful, ultimate picture of two becoming one. That we become one flesh. It's what the picture is, or it's the picture of salvation. Of there is a God, and there is me, and then God says, I want you to become a part of me. I want to become a part of your life. And that one day, all of us who are part of his church are going to have one massive, awesome wedding celebration when the church and the bridegroom come together in union. That's what marriage is. So who are we 
to want to separate that. What God has put together, let no man separate, right? That's what the problem is. It's our hearts. I want us to see that this pattern will emerge throughout this whole passage. See, the religious leaders had abused the law in order to slap band-aids on their sin. Well, husbands and wives get in arguments. We sin. Things happen. So, let's just end it. That's not fixing the problem. See, if I were to, to just you know, look at Jessica one day and say, you know what, you're sinning and I'm sinning. This just isn't working out. So let's divorce, right? Does that fix my heart problem? No. And if I end up going and dating and then marrying someone else, I'm just going to take whatever problems I had still had with her and put it on this other woman. It's all a problem that has to do with our hearts. Now, I do want to focus on this, though, okay? Because I find it very interesting and very important that in a passage where Jesus himself is telling us that those, we don't even need to focus on those legalities, those little things of it, as much as our hearts, he still gives one. Did you catch that? Jesus said this. He said, um, lost my part there. There it is. He says, and um, anyways, but I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. See, Alex had a hard passage last week, but it's an important one. See, if in a whole passage, if a whole section where Jesus is literally telling us to look away from those things, to focus on our inward hearts, if even he mentions one in particular, do you think it's important to him? Think it's important to God? I hope you were here last Sunday. If you weren't, listen to it on YouTube. Listen to that passage. Go back and dig into our hearts. God takes our um, how we handle lust, how we handle sexual sins, incredibly important. And look, if you want to have a healthy marriage, root out those things in your life. Amen? That's what we need to do. So remember, God wants us in all of this to be more righteous than the Pharisees. The, right, the Pharisees looked at marriage and they were teaching that marriage was important, that we, they, they would probably say we shouldn't divorce, but then they would say, but it's okay if you do, as long as you do it right. They weren't focused on their hearts. Jesus wants us to understand this, that true righteousness starts in the heart and becomes our actions. Look, when Jessica and I got married, actually long before we got married, the night we started dating, we were both um, pretty deep into college. I was a senior in college, actually. So we were both adults at this point. We were done with just dating for fun, <laughs> okay? And we had the conversation right at the start. We said, divorce is not an option. Because we knew the, time, the night we started dating, we were like, we, I want to date you because I want to marry you. It's <laughs> kind of the point of it. And we said, divorce isn't an option. And we said, yep, that's right. It's not. And that wasn't, we didn't add any but ifs. What if you, you do this? What if I do this? What if blah, blah, blah? No. It wasn't an option. We made sure from the very start that our hearts were leading us in the right way. That our hearts were saying, divorce isn't an option because we're going to do this God's way. It's to be righteous. Then the only way to be that kind of righteous, to have that kind of true righteousness, it has to start in the hearts. And because of that, because that's where Jessica and I's hearts started, we, not to brag, but I'll brag a little bit, I think we have a great marriage. <laughs> she makes it very easy, by the way. <laughs> uh, if you know her, you know it's true. But even when I'm an idiot, which is often, <laughs> it's, we know that our hearts are in the right place, and it leads us to the actions that make a healthy marriage. That's what he wants for us. So then we move to the next one, oaths. Look at this, what the Bible says here with oaths here. 
Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Oaths became a really big deal back then, and they even are now, right? How many times do we have to say to someone, I promise, right? Have you ever actually stopped to think about why we have to say that so often? Why do we have to say to somebody, I promise I'm going to do this? Because we're untrustworthy. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> I, I, I thought of this, man. This hit me like a ton of bricks when I was reading a, one of the commentaries studying for this, and it said, if my children, the person was writing this, he said, if my children always have to look at me when I tell them I will do something for them and say, do you promise, Dad? That should hurt. That was hard, <laughs> right? And we think it's so normal. It's such a normal part of our day that we just make an oath. We make a promise. Don't worry. I promise I'm going to do this. Teacher, I promise I'll get this done on time, right? Mom, Dad, I promise I'll do this chore. Honey, I promise I will clean the floors right this time. I promise I'll do this. We have to make promises because we are sinful. And oaths in the Old Testament, which were once again instituted by God through Moses, they were not given as something we have to do. They were given as something to regulate the deceitful hearts of people. See, it's an, um, an ironic truth. We all lie. <laughs> we're all liars. We're all deceivers. And even when we don't realize it, we put little untruths into the things that we say all the time. It's hard to tell the truth all day long, right? It's weird. I don't hear as many amens on that one. <laughs> but if we're being honest, we know that it's true about ourselves. That's why we have to give these things to our language. We have to say that we promise it, right? We ask someone else to promise us because ultimately we know they're not very trustworthy when it comes down to it. But just like divorce, oaths had been abused by the people of Jesus. Since they technically could uh, make an oath by the Lord, they did it all the time. And they even, by Jesus' day, started trivializing it in pretty funny ways, actually. They would start saying things where, where they would say, if the Bible says, you know, if we make an oath by the Lord, we must keep it. But if we make an oath by anything else, oh well. It was actually a common thing back in those days for a man to say, if he said, I swear by the Lord, he would have to keep it. But if I looked at Joseph and said, hey, I promise by the white beards, the white beards, you know, or the white hairs in my beard, whatever. I promise by my beard, right? Or I promise by Alex's hair, okay? If I promise by anything else, I didn't have to keep it. <laughs> but if I promised by the Lord, I had to keep it. What foolishness that would be. See, what Jesus says is, look, forget all that. <laughs> yes, you can make promises, and sometimes we even should because People know that we aren't trustworthy. But as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, we shouldn't have to. Our character should be so upright, should be so morally perfect, that when people hear us say simply yes or no, they know that that is the truth. Man, I remember growing up, and even today, honestly, when I would hear people say, I swear to God, I will do this. It would really make me cringe. Some of you in here probably feel the same way, right? And the thing is, that's actually still very popular today. Even among teenagers and young people, they, they just shortened it today. And they just say, on God, right? Just, on God, I'm going to pass this test this week. 
right? Or my favorite is when they don't feel like bold enough to say that. They say like on my mama or something like that, right? It's like, don't say that either, right? (laughs) But people do this all the time. And I used to always think swearing by God seems way too steep, (laughs) right? You really want to put that kind of pressure on you (laughs) that you don't want to do that? But look, it's not just when we actually say the words, I swear to God. Jesus said that when we swear, uh, that anything we swear by is ultimately swearing by him. It says, don't swear by the earth or anything in the earth, because guess what? God made the earth, so he's in charge of that too. Don't swear by Jerusalem. God's the king of Jerusalem. Don't swear at all. We shouldn't even have to make these promises. And yes, I'm not saying we can never make promises or oaths. Of course, as I said, sometimes we do need to make them. Uh, And like for uh, covenantal reasons too. Yes, when I stood before God and man in marriage, I made a promise to God and my wife and everyone in the room that I would stay faithful. If you go into a courtroom as a Christian, don't think that you can't swear. Um, Swear in and there, right? That, oh, I'm sinning. No, (laughs) that's a good place to promise before people that we're not going to sin. Sometimes we do make an oath, and sometimes even before the Lord, but if you do that, make sure you take it seriously. Make sure it's coming from a place of your heart first. See, there was only, other than my promise to Jessica, there's only ever been one oath I've ever made before the Lord. And that was when I was younger. And it's one that because I made it to God, as I grew up, I realized how important I needed to keep that. See, when I was around 10 years old, I got bothered by the fact that there were so many kids around me, even kids my age, around 10, that were cursing all the time. I just let bad language fly like crazy. And even as a young kid, I understood that our words were important, that God gave us words to tell people about him. And so as a 10-year-old, I made a promise to God that I would never curse, that I would never say a curse word. And guess what? By his power alone, that's an oath that I've kept. I sin in so many other ways. I'm so far from perfect. But that's something I've been able to keep. And I even use that in my ministry to teenagers to teach them that, look, you don't have to talk that way, (laughs) okay? I've gone through my entire life without using any of those words. It's possible. You don't have to. But the reason I say that to you is not to build me up, is to say that I am in fear of that oath, a righteous fear, because I never want to break it. I want to hold that oath that I made before the Lord, because I don't want to break something I made from my heart to him. Because ultimately, it does come down to our hearts. If our hearts are full of honesty, then we won't feel the need to make those oaths. But that's hard, because God's word says this about our hearts. That the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If we're going to have honest hearts all the time, it's not going, going to come easy. We have to work daily to train our hearts in the way of honesty. And we have to do that, because we are called to be different than the world. See this? Disciples of Jesus are called to a higher standard. Yes, it's okay to make oaths and promises when we have to, but we are called to a higher standard. That when someone looks at Jordan, when someone looks at you, and they just simply hear me say, I'm going to do this, no promise needed. That's my standard. That's what we're called to. And I hope that's where you are too. So quickly, let's look at these last ones. It goes into retaliation in verses 38 through 42. You can, For sake of time, I'm not going to reread it, but you can look through these as I go through it. It mentions this, and these next two ones are the ones that we as people, we really struggle with, right? And we kind of get some of these wrong, too. And he says, and, um, you know, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Please, let me just start right here. This has nothing to do with self-defense, okay? 
As a Christian, if someone comes and just starts trying to mug you and beat you up, you don't have to just lay there and take it. That's not what Jesus is saying. Okay? Just like, give me all your money. Oh, take her money too. What? No. (laughs) Turning the other person. (laughs) That's not what it's saying here. It's talking about insults. When it says if someone were to slap you on the right cheek, they would always write as if the person they're talking about was right-handed. That means it's a backhanded slap. It's an insult. He's saying if someone's to insult you, why do we feel the need to fight back? That's not what Jesus was about. Jesus spent his whole ministry being insulted. He took it. He turned the other cheek. Look, if you were here a number of weeks ago, Alex taught about meekness. And one of the things that he talked about was meekness is understanding that we are worse than other people understand that we are. So what Jesus is saying here is if someone comes to insult me and slaps me on the cheek, be like, whew, you should hit this one too, man. You didn't get enough. <laughs> Look, whatever you're offended about, I promise there's more to hit off of me. Like, you just go ahead and hit me again because we understand where our hearts are. Turn the other cheek. We don't have to retaliate. And then he says this, that if anyone would sue us and take our tunic, man, If someone's going to sue us for a dumb reason, because that's what it's alluding to, just like divorce and oaths, people were suing people for no reason at all. Hey, you stepped on my cat's tail. Let's go to court. (laughs) Right? It was for those foolish reasons. But if we're, like, really honest with ourselves, if someone were to take us over to to court over something stupid, our pride kicks in, and we're like, I'm going to fight tooth and nail over this. No, you're going to sue me for something that dumb? I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to win. (laughs) I'm definitely not going to lose something like that. But Jesus says, what foolishness that is, is that really that important? If they're going to sue you for your tunic, that's what normally, if it was something small like that, you would walk out of there and be like, hey, I want his shirt. Okay, I can go to Walmart. I can get another shirt. Bible Walmart. That probably was a thing. And you just take the shirt off, but he's like, no. Instead, what if you just give him your coat too? What if when you walk out of there, because that person's going to expect the Christian to get mad. That person's going to expect the Christian to act like so many other Christians they've heard and say, no, this is wrong. I can't believe you would treat Christians this way, blah, 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 blah. No. What if we said, you really want my shirt that bad? Okay. Maybe, maybe you need it. Hey, why don't you take my coat too? You can have this. And then he goes to the next one. It was a common practice in that time for the Roman soldiers, if they had a big load of stuff to carry, they could just find a random Jewish citizen, and I'd be like, hey, Joseph. Good to see you. Grab this load of logs. you got to walk with me. We're going to take this to the next town. And as a Jewish person, you basically had to do it. If you didn't, you could be thrown in prison or beaten. And so it was customary, though, the Jewish person could go up to one mile, and at that point, after that mile, the Jewish person was legally allowed to look at the soldier and say, that's my mile, I'm done. And the soldier would have to find some other poor sucker to do it, right? But what if Joseph went that mile with me, and then I'm like, at the mile, I guess he's going to leave. And Joseph's like, I mean, I'm feeling good. Let's keep going. Let's go that one more mile. Literally where the term go the extra mile comes from, if you ever wondered. See, this is the purpose behind it. If the Christian led by the a heart, led by God, does those things, it's going to be noticed. It's going to be remembered. See, that person that slaps me to insult me is going to remember when I turn around and go, hey, you probably need to keep going. If that person who sued me walks out there with an extra bit of winnings, they're going to remember it. If that soldier had a Jewish person go an extra mile with them when they had no reason to, they're going to remember it, and they're going to wonder, where did this come from? What kind of person does that? 
What kind of person just lets me insult them? What kind of person just gives me more than I sued them for? What kind of person goes the extra mile when they literally don't have to to help someone who doesn't even like them? What kind of love is this? Do you see where it leads? It leads that person to Jesus. And it only takes someone who has matured in their faith enough to get to that point. Because that's hard. But listen, the next point I want you to know is spiritual maturity comes with a humble heart. So this is what it comes down to. The reason these last ones are so hard for us is because we're prideful people. Amen? We don't want to lose. I don't want to be insulted. I don't want to have to work harder than I have to for someone because it's about me. But church, if it's not about me, that all goes away. If it's all about Jesus, then I want that person to know Jesus. So I'm going to do whatever it takes, even if it makes me less. I hope it makes me less, amen? Because I want people to know Jesus. It comes with a humble heart. And it's with a humble heart we get to that next one. That last part where it says, give to those who beg and don't refuse the ones who would borrow from you. Now once again, please understand, this is talking about people in actual need. Yes, we should use wisdom, we should use um, uh, discretion, integrity to uh, see who we give to. We don't want to perpetuate a lifestyle of sin. But if you truly see someone that's in need, you help them. See, for the Pharisees, this was hard to hear, especially when Jesus would teach the story of the Good Samaritan, right? When people would see someone actually in need, and the good people, the righteous people, would see an actual need and say, "Mm mm-mm, can't do that. I'm too good. I'm too righteous. I'm too holy. And they'd leave him alone, and it took a Samaritan person to actually have compassion and humility to say, I'm going to help this person. That's what it looks like. That's what a humble heart looks like. Which leads us to our last one, and the hardest for all of us, to love your enemies. See, once again, this came from a place of misunderstanding. And I love this, that Jesus makes a quote that they are saying they heard that actually isn't even found in Scripture. It's a twisting. He said, you've heard it it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Here's a fun fact. Hate your enemy is not anywhere in the Old Testament. See, the idea of hate and even things that we should hate is in the Old Testament. But never once are we told to hate our enemies. But because these religious leaders, they had had heard hate mentioned in the Old Testament, they took it and twisted it because it's a lot easier to hate our enemies, isn't it? It's a lot easier to look at the people that believe and act and do differently and do horrendous things to us and hate them. I remember someone taught this to me very shortly after 9-11, even as a, a middle schooler. I still remember this. And they were saying, it's very easy for us to hate those who do these things. And yes, they need to be stopped. Do not get me wrong. Evil needs to be stopped. But can you imagine if the church collectively had stopped to pray for the Muslims in the Middle East. And then instead of having just hearts full of hate, we had prayed for their salvation. We had prayed for their conversion. That's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? We don't want to do that, do we? I mentioned them on purpose. That's a hard one. We're like, no, 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 no. They're, they're, they're very much our enemies, Jordan. They're the bad guys. So are we. We're the bad guys too before Jesus. We, guess what? You know what the Bible called us? enemies of God. That's what all of us are without Jesus. And he loved us when we were his enemies. 
That's incredibly hard to do. So Jesus says, no, you should love your enemies and pray for them. He tells us exactly how to love them. Jesus, I don't know how to love them. I don't know how to do that. They hate me. They've done horrible things. How do I love them? Pray for them. See, there's a wonderful correlation between love and prayer. See, if you're praying for someone and you actually mean it, even if it's hard and it takes a few tries, it's impossible to not care for the person you're praying for. And if you start praying for them, you're going to start to feel a love for them you didn't realize you had before. And then once you feel that love, what's it going to encourage you to do? You're going to keep praying for them. And it's going to start a holy cycle where you see this love and prayer happen. And why should we do it? Jesus said it's because I love them. I mentioned the common grace earlier. Jesus said, I make my sun shine and my rain fall on the good and the evil. It doesn't matter if they love me or hate me. I'm letting blessings come to them. And Christian, you should do the same. That's how we should treat them. And then he says this. Look, if we only love the people and treat kindly the people that love us, we're just like them. We aren't any different. But church, we're called to be different. And the very last uh, words in this passage makes the point of how, why this is so hard. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, amen, Jesus. That's the only way I'm going to be able to love my enemies <laughs> and not retaliate is if I'm perfect. But how in the world do we get there? How do we become perfect as God is perfect? We look to Jesus, the founder. Anybody know the next word? perfecter of our faith. We look to Jesus. Church, the only way to follow Jesus' commands is to be more like Jesus. Jesus, how do we do this? You've given me some hard things to say, some hard things to do. How do I do this? How do I be perfect like God is perfect? By being like Jesus. Look to him, the author, the founder, and the perfecter of our faith. Be like Christ. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he didn't look at God and say, I hate these people, smite them. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's our example. So church, where do you find yourself today? Is your heart where it needs to be? When it comes to obeying the laws of God, are we more concerned about just getting all the little details right so that we look good to our other church members? Or do we care that our heart is in the right place so that we can lead other people to Jesus? So that when we step out of these doors, the people see our hearts and they want to join the kingdom. That's what it's about. Let's pray together.